So our session for today is entitled Christian Development and Roman Disintegration from 361 to 430 AD. So you guys have had a couple of weeks of um, excellent theology done um, in a row, and this is taking you up through the same period, and now I'm going to be going back and looking through at some of the more important political and cultural developments in this time period to help flesh out uh, those theological developments you've seen. Junius has taken you through um, the transition between talking about primarily Trinitarian doctrine um, to Christological doctrine, and I'm going to be showing what's going on in this crucial period in the Roman Empire, as we'll see that um, while Christianity is finding its footing as far as, as Trinitarian and Christological doctrine go, um, the Roman Empire in which Christianity has been spreading for the first four centuries of its existence is starting to fall apart, and that's going to have profound consequences for the way people view Christianity in this period and um, some of the major final attacks made against Christianity from outside of it, from the last um, major surviving pagan forces. And those attacks are going to look very different from what we talked about in the beginning of the semester when uh, pagans were uh, attacking Christianity from a position of strength um, and from a position of a relative lack of understanding. People, Christianity has been around a long time now, and the pagans who are attacking it know what it's about, and they um, have some uh, different kinds of critiques that we're going to be going through today. So first I'd like to take you through some of the major political events uh, that are going on in this period. And this will overlap very slightly with uh, what we did about three weeks ago, and then carry on from there. So the first person that we're going to talk about is somebody that I mentioned a little while, uh, that I mentioned three weeks ago, the Emperor Julian. He starts off our period because we're going to be hearing from him personally a little bit later this morning. Uh, he rules from 361 to 363, and he tries to reinstitute paganism in the empire. After, at the beginning of the century, Constantine converted to Christianity, and he makes Christianity legal. Uh, his great, his um, grand nephew, Julian, when he comes to power in the middle of the century, or a little bit after the middle of the century, is the only Roman emperor after Constantine to openly revert to paganism and try and reconstitute it. And it's a fascinating historical project, but it was cut very short by the fact that the Emperor Julian was killed only two years into his reign in the year um, 363, and many of his policies did not have the chance to uh, take root in the empire or in people's minds. Constantine, by contrast, ruled for over 30 years. And um, when he made changes, they had uh, an entire generation in which to be implemented. So following the Emperor Julian, the um, empire goes back to Christianity, although it is still back and forth between what we've come to call Catholic and then Arian Christianity. And Junius uh, is taking you through some of the intricacies of that controversy. But um, it continues to go politically back and forth until the year 378, when the Catholic Emperor Theodosius takes power. And he is from Spain, he is fully Catholic, he's from the West, and he's a little bit of an outsider in these Eastern conflicts, but he comes down firmly on the side of Nicene Orthodoxy and says, that's what we're going to do. Um, he comes to power in, a, in the wake of a major military disaster. There's a battle called, uh, at a place called Adrianople. Now, if you want to look at the last page on your handout, I've got a map here, and I'm going to be mentioning several geographical locations, and this is a map of the later Roman Empire um, from about the time of Constantine, and it stays looking like this through most of the fourth century, although pieces start to fall away from it, which I'll be talking about a little bit um, this morning, and they start to fall away in the early fifth century. 
I do apologize for the break in the middle. This is the best map that I could find that's on two pages. However, the break in the middle is uh, fairly useful because it is a um, it comes right at the point of division between the Eastern and Western empires, which I'll be talking about um, this morning. So consider that a um, de facto uh, addition to uh, the map key, that uh, Eastern Empire is pretty much everything on the right-hand side of this, the Eastern Mediterranean, um, and the Western Empire is everything from Italy and further west. And the Battle of Adrianople um, happens in, you can actually see the city, it is, if you look at Greece and go straight north and just a little bit east, um, I don't know if you, uh, you can see me pointing from here, but right about where my finger is, is where that battle was. Um, and the battle of Romans against the Goths, and the Goths win and annihilate Rome's northern army, kill the emperor, and look like they're about ready to start rampaging through all of Greece and the Eastern Roman Empire and it is up to Theodosius to come back um, and regroup Rome's military forces and um, push the, or make some kind of a, a, either push the Goths out or failing that to start incorporating them into the Roman army peacefully, um, which he does rather, rather successfully. But this is an example of things to come. This is one of the first major incursions by barbarians into what's traditionally Roman territory, and the Romans aren't able to fully expel them. The, um, we saw that the Rome, Rome had trouble in the third century, but the Diocletian and Constantine were able to put things back together. But starting in this period, um, the Ro Romans, and especially Romans in the West, are going to have increasingly more trouble um, holding off barbarian invasions, and they're going to start losing provinces, and the uh, political unity of the Roman Empire in the West is going to start to fall apart. Um, but before that, in 380, uh, uh, Theodosius looks like he's got things pretty much back under control. He makes Christianity the only legal religion, and he calls a second ecumenical council. And so we've talked about this council being uh, called to Constantinople in 381, and where it reaffirms Trinitarian doctrine, um, gives us what we actually call the Nicene Creed, even though it was um, written later on in the fourth century than is usually attributed. It is, of course, related to the Nicene Creed of 325. Um, and Junius is taking you through some of the more um, detailed aspects of what that meant, the increased role and understanding of the Holy Spirit within the Trinity. Um, and this pretty much puts a seal on that first major stage of Trinitarian conflict. And so Christians, um, the, the Arian controversy, which looks like it was going to swallow up um, Christian orthodoxy, is now um, both legally and theologically put, Orthodoxy and Orthodoxy uh, put on a stronger footing. And Christianity seems to be becoming more unified, and at exactly the same kind of exactly the same time period in which the uh, political Roman Empire is starting to show uh, signs of weakness and disintegration. Uh, in 386, a very interesting person named Augustine of Hippo converts to Christianity um, over in the western side of the empire. If you um, look down um, in North Africa, um, just to the uh, left of the island of Sicily on your map, you'll see the city of Carthage. And um, just below that in North Africa, and not actually pictured on this map, is the city of Hippo, where Augustine is going to spend most of his career. And so just keep him in mind. We'll be talking about him a little bit more um, this morning. But he is another major figure being um, coming into his own in exactly this time period. In 395, this is the end of 
Theodosius reign, and this is the last time under Theodosius that the empire is held together under one emperor. In 395, he divides the empire between his two sons, Arcadius, who hits the east, and Honorius, who hits the west. And he didn't intend for this division to be permanent. Uh, Roman emperors had divided the empire among their sons several times in the past, and it had always eventually worked out, at least, that the uh, Roman Empire would be reconsolidated under a single ruler again at some point later, or that these two rulers were intended to rule in um, harmony and in uh, conjunction with one another. However, this system uh, was being put under increasing strain, and this just historically ends up being the last point at which the, the empire was unified. Um, it's not that the Eastern and Western Empires start fighting against each other, it's just that the Western Empire comes under increasing attack after this period, and the Eastern Empire, though it can hold its own, doesn't have enough resources to put the whole empire back together and to send armies to the defense of the West. So um, Honorius uh, starts to rule as a child. He's um, increasingly, he's, he and some of his successors are increasingly um, under the thumb of very powerful advisors, some of their generals who have um, often narrower ambitions than previous Roman empire, emperors. And um, the, the East and the West start politically simply going their own separate ways. So this, this line down the middle of our map becomes a permanent thing in 395. And as a consequence of this, in 410, the city of Rome is sacked by Alaric, king of the Visigoths, who was actually previous, in, you know, earlier on in his career was actually employed by Rome and was um, one of its major generals, but he decided to strike out on his own. He thought that he would have a better and more um, distinguished career if he led his own people um, against the Roman state and decided to plunder it instead of working for it. He thought that he could uh, get a higher paycheck from plunder than he could from um, just getting paid by the treasury. So this is the first time that Rome has been sacked since 387 BC, by, and that was a sack by the Gauls. Now, to give you some perspective on this, we in the United States tend to think of ourselves as fairly secure militarily. We don't, we're not really worried about being invaded. And, I mean, we have issues with you know military abroad and in the world as a whole, but we don't really think that the armies are going to come marching through Connecticut, foreign armies. But when you look at this in historical perspective, the Washington, D.C. was um, sacked and burned by the British Army in 1812. This is almost exactly 200 years ago. And in our memory, that's forever ago. It's, it's almost, it's something that the history book's not really relevant to, uh, to us thinking that this is something that could happen in our lifetimes 200 years ago. This was nearly 800 years that Rome had stood unchallenged in the ancient world. In, in a world where this kind of thing happened much more often than it does today, even in the more, some of the more unstable parts of the modern world, that cities would be attacked and taken and then given back and attacked again from the other side. Uh, Rome had spent a great deal of this time, um, centuries in fact, without a wall around it. They'd torn down the wall and said, we can use these stones better for building houses and coliseums and theaters than we can for um, defense. And that actually there was only a Roman wall built again in third century, um, in that time of trouble that I mentioned before. So the psychological impact of Rome, the eternal city, the city that was supposed to rule the world in peace, being sacked, was incredible. Um, militarily, it was 
not really that big a deal. It was one more step in a, a long process of disintegration, and not necessarily the most important step, but psychologically, this meant to old-line Romans, people, both Christians and pagans alike, that something drastic had changed in the world, and people wanted an explanation. They wanted to know what is God or what are the gods trying to tell us with this sack of Rome and this end of an era that, for all intents and purposes, had been, they thought was going to be eternal. Um, so keep those questions in mind um, because they're going to come up in a big way when we start talking about the career of Augustine today. And as you can see in the next entry on this um, miniature timeline here, is that from 413 to 427, Augustine of Hippo composes the City of God, which is one long answer to, this, to the exact questions that are being raised by the sack of the City of Rome. Um, in 410 also, Roman Britain was abandoned. So at the same, in the same year that the, um, the, the city of Rome was sacked by barbarians, the, one of the provinces was simply sheared off uh, from the Roman Empire and abandoned permanently. Uh, Rome had abandoned some, some parts of its territory before tactically in order to regroup and reconquer, and the Romans thought they were going to do that this time, but it turns out again, just like the division of the empire in the east and west, that this one was going to be permanent. Um, and so Romans started slowly withdrawing their troops from Roman Britain and leaving it to its own devices. Uh, the emperors essentially sent a letter to uh, the Britons and said, sorry, um, whatever problems you have going on right now, any requests that you make to us for more troops and more money are not going to be answered. In fact, we're going to be taking those away. So they completely withdraw from Britain in 410. And then in 429, um, shortly after Augustine composes, finishes composing the city of God, a, another group of barbarians makes their way all the way through Spain, through France and through Spain, which are um, still largely Roman provinces at this time, although they're um, being slowly uh, dismembered by um, invading tribes, and make their way across the strait here and into North Africa. North Africa was a very rich and very lightly defended province of the Roman Empire, and these people knew it. Um, and they're a group called the Vandals, and they um, Augustine ends his life in 430 in the city of Hippo um, under siege by the Vandals, actually. There are, Vandal tribes are outside of his city um, trying to break into the walls um, when he dies, when he gets sick and dies in the year 430. So we can see that the empire is gone from 360 with the, um, emperor, with the emperor Julian and trying to invade Persia and complete the Roman dream of worldwide conquest to 430 with the um, barbarians literally at the gate um, and provinces being sheared off of the Western Empire and um, very serious questions being raised about the role of the divine in the world versus the temporal um, stability and peace represented by the Roman Empire. <coughs> there are any questions on political, social, uh, political military stuff and names and places and all that stuff before we move on to some of these uh, ideological questions being raised in this period. <coughs> I know that's kind of a lot to get um, in a quick go, but hopefully it helps give some of the background. Yeah? Well, for me, I cover both, but uh, when you talk about paganism, has, has that changed? I don't know what it was. It was a practice. But was, it, was, there, was there any change in practices of paganism during the time that uh, Christianity came on the scene? I mean, you know, everybody kind of, you 
involved or changed to some extent. One of the changes in paganism as a whole was um, that the Emperor Julian, who was raised as a Christian, tries to systematize paganism and tries to give it a theology. He even, try, he even sets up catechetical schools along the model of Christianity, uh, tries to regularize the worship of the gods and posits the idea of maybe a one one highest god beyond the pantheon of the lower gods. And Christianity, it seems as though paganism in this period, in order to compete with Christianity, is actually starting to look like it in some ways. Um, Julian would not have been, would not have appreciated that idea. He um, thought that he was very much a conservative in bringing um, paganism back to what it looked like centuries and centuries before. But overall, the period, the um, Paganism is not innovating um, to a, a great deal, except for this, this project of Julian's, and it simply seems to be on the overall decline. The difference, uh, pay, uh, people are paying less attention to temples, they are uh, paying less money to them, temples are going into disrepair, they're falling apart, um, priests are not getting money to make regular sacrifices, that sort of thing, and it's in the decline. However, Paganism, as we'll see in the City of God, still is very much bound up with the um, people's understanding of the way the world is ordered. That the Roman gods gave victory to the Roman legions, and that appropriate honoring of the Roman gods is essential to temporal peace. Um, and that the coming disasters, all of a sudden, people are looking, pagans are looking back over centuries of decline and saying, Maybe now we're reaping the benefits of that decline. They're reading the old authors and they're saying, maybe we need to, to try and somehow salvage something from this, and maybe Christianity is not the answer and not providing this, this new kingdom of God, this new world of peace that we've been expecting, because things are worse for us now than they were a generation ago. So those are, those are the kind of questions that are coming up um, with that. So why don't we move on from here to uh, what I've labeled two ideological attacks on Christianity. Now, if you remember, some of the, um, the last time we talked about attacks on Christianity, this was in the first and second centuries, and uh, attacks came very largely from misunderstandings of Christian faith. So, um, pagans saying that Christians are cannibals because they talk about eating um, Jesus Christ, who was uh, both a person and a god of some kind. They talk about Christians as being incestuous because while they're marrying each other, they call one another brother and sister. And so um, Hagen was trying to take that sort of thing literally. The um, attacks that are being made in the 4th and 5th centuries, however, are by people who know what Christianity is. Um, Julian was, in fact, raised as a Christian and was um, uh, taught in a catechetical school and actually had rather um, high-level teachers and he was an intelligent person. So he, he knew what Christian doctrine was. And he had a problem with the Christian idea of forgiveness. And this comes out in a text that I'd like to share with you guys. Um, it is a satire of the Emperor Constantine that you'll find on the second page of your handout. And what has gone on before this text begins is that in the afterlife, after, um, most of, uh, after several of the great uh, emperors have all died, they are assembled before a panel of the gods. Um, the, so 
uh, Jupiter, Hera, um, the, the, really the whole pantheon. Um, often, I think, with Greek names in this text because Julian liked to go back and forth between the Greek and Latin names of the gods. And the emperors are charged with making speeches in their own, in, not in their own defense exactly, but um, extolling their own, their own deeds and accomplishments on earth. And the gods are going to judge between the Roman emperors and decide which one was the greatest. And so the, some of the emperors that come up in this, um, Octavian is uh, the name of, that we know eventually is the emperor Augustus. Marcus is the emperor Marcus Aurelius. Um, and some other emperors also come up um, just by name very quickly in this passage, but those are some of the major characters. And Constantine gives up, uh, comes up and gives his speeches, and um, Julian essentially just makes fun of him. He, he, he just says that Constantine is just a big blowhard. He's making um, huge uh, rhetorical, empty rhetorical pronouncements about things that he did which were really selfish and petty, and he just eviscerates um, Constantine's whole speech and undercuts it all. And where we're coming in at the end of this um, satire is where the gods pronounce their judgment, and then each emperor is called upon to um, sit at the feet of the deity which most, uh, with which he's most, um, his personality is most closely aligned. So each of these, each of these emperors is, Julian tells you something about what he thinks about each of these emperors by which deity they choose to, to go with. Um, and there's a, uh, Jesus makes a surprising appearance in this um, satire right here in, and speaks in a way that uh, as Christians we would find very strange and yet um, it will give us a clue into the way that um, Christianity is being viewed by um, one particular late pagan critic. Uh, so do we have a volunteer who would like to read um, from this section right here that's uh, under the title and Julian the Apostate on Constantine on page two at the bottom of page two. You guys have been doing so well with the reading.
had to approach without fear. The wishes water where I watched him, and then straightway ran to win. And those who could be guilty of this same sin the second time, let him but smite his breast, and beat his head, and I will make him clean again. To him Constantine came gladly, and he had conducted his son to court from the assembly of the gods. So he had been deemed deity, nonetheless to punish both him and them for their impiety and exacted the penalty for the shedding of blood of their kindred, until Zeus granted them a respite for the sake of Claudius and Constantine. As for thee, and only said to me, I have granted thee the knowledge of thy father, my Do thou keep his commandments, and thus secure for thyself a table and pure anchorage throughout thy life. And when thou must depart from the world, thou canst with good hope adopt him. Thank you. Very well read. So what do you think about this? Um, pagans accusing Christians of being immoral. As opposed to the other way around. Um, what's, what do you think about the proclamations of Jesus um, that Julius is putting into his mouth in this passage? Yeah? Same thing unbelievers say to them. Another person so bad, how can he be forgiven? <coughs> Talk to two friends and they that's what they tell him. You don't see how really bad people can be forgiven. So not surprising to you, you feel like this this comes up continually. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think if we can help them when you're in the company of a believer who you know really well. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the, uh, so the avenging deities nonetheless punished him and them for their impiety. This is Constantine and his sons. Um, so Constantine was accused of killing both his eldest son and his wife. Um, the, he certainly did have his eldest son executed, and then the wife is a little bit more iffy. Um, and then Constantine's three oldest surviving sons, the day that they took power after Constantine died, um, all of Constantine's other relatives, except for Julian and one, el- and one other person who were both boys, about age seven or eight, and people thought that they weren't um, uh, enough of a threat to worry about, every other male relative in Constantine's very large family who might conceivably challenge one of those three sons for the throne was killed um, in a coordinated effort uh, on the same day. Who ordered it among the three sons, if it was one of the three of them, if it was all three of them agreeing, if it was someone else working on their behalf, we'll never know. Um, The sources are intentionally silent on that point. Um, But Constantine and his family are by no means um, free from charges of murder, and in fact, murder of their own family members. And so when you contrast those those facts 
some of them facts, some of them simply rumors, um, with something like Eusebius's unwavering praise of Constantine, there's kind of a disjunct there that um, people like uh, Julian were, were happy to fasten on um, and to bring out in a in something like this. So saying for so their belief was that the principle of forgiveness is simply too too lax that we pagans who who know that people are going to have to be punished for what they've done in life by the gods afterward are more moral. We take sin more seriously than Christians do. Who with Jesus walking around saying, just splash this water over your head, be baptized, and all of your sins go away. You're being made white as snow. And there were some pagans who were saying, no, the the world doesn't work that way. Sin needs to be paid for. And missing the the idea that um, the entire message of Jesus was being that the sin is paid for and it is paid for in the most um, extreme and utter way um, by the death and torture and resurrection of Jesus. So there's a piece missing there, but you can see how it becomes increasingly easy for some people to miss this piece as Christianity starts to become established and it becomes a political necessary necessity for people like Eusebius to kind of whitewash the new Christian emperors. Christian emperors who may be very sincere, but who are also emperors, who are working in an imperfect world, making political decisions, using judicial violence against their own citizens, using um, military violence against people outside of the Roman Empire. And so these these issues are becoming very difficult and very complex. Uh, the, the Emperor Theodosius himself, um, the Supreme Catholic Emperor who, who calls the Second Ecumenical Council, was um, confronted with a riot in the city of Thessaloniki, um, on your map here in northern Greece. Um, and he responded to rioting citizens there in 381 by calling an assembly in the amphitheater in Thessaloniki, and then after most of the major people, um, a few thousand of them, the, the most uh, discontented and riotous citizens were in the amphitheater, then calling in the troops after them and massacring everyone in the theater. And he was actually called to account by the um, Christian bishop Ambrose, Ambrose who was in Milan, and Ambrose wouldn't let him come in to take communion until he um, acknowledged his sin and uh, started to do penance for it. So this is actually the first instance of a bishop standing up to an emperor and saying, no, what you've done is wrong. A Christian bishop standing up to a Christian emperor. So these, these issues of Christianity in power um, are becoming pretty serious in this time, and they're not going to go away. This is a um, foretaste of things to come through the entire medieval church for the next thousand years. You're going to have issues of... Um, Christians in power as secular rulers, Christians in power as ecclesiastical rulers, and how are they going to negotiate the, the issues of this, and where is the gospel um, being proclaimed or obscured in, in these social and political con contexts. So moving on from here, um, this was a... This is Julian's critique from outside of Christianity um, early on in this period. And then as we uh, talked about briefly before, the, a new major critique comes to the fore in starting in 410. 
um, after the sack of Rome. And this is, there's no single voice standing out like Julian's to say, to articulate the argument. There's a, a general murmuring of pagans against Christians and saying that um, we have we have dishonored the, the ancient gods, the gods that founded, helped us found our empire and gave it to us, and we're reaping the consequences of this. And the, the reason that we've started dishonoring the gods is that we've given up worship of them for the worship of the one Christian god, and we need to go back to this. And some Christians take this attack very seriously and start to write apologies for it. Um, one, the, one of the first ones to, to get something written was a man named Erosius, who was actually a friend of, Constant, of um, Augustine's, and wrote a response in 417 titled, A History Against the Pagans. And he did a, not a very good job of it. He, he wrote kind of quickly, and he, had, and he decided that he was going to bend historical facts to um, his theological ideas. Never, never do this. Never, ever anyone do this. Um, only one of the uh, strongest temptations of my professional life uh, against which I am continually trying to find um, reasoned arguments not to do and uh, in practical terms trying to catch myself and keep myself from doing it. But he systematically exaggerated all of the negative things in uh, the Roman historians that he could read and started and said, that in fact, the, you know, the traditional view of uh, the Roman of Roman historiography was that the the age of the Republic was the age of high morality, and the empire had fallen into decadence and sin. And Erosius turns this around and says, "No, actually, this period of the Republic was horrible and sinful because it was a period without Christianity, and that the empire was actually much better because Christians started to come on the scene and from within revitalize the morals of the Christian empire." And we can see him numerous times um, making distortions in um, the historical record, even as it existed for him, um, by uh, exaggerating the negativity of the Republic and minimizing the bad things that happened under the Empire. And when bad things did happen under the Empire, he simply said, this bad thing happened because a Roman emperor was persecuting Christians. And that was, that was the consequence. So he's, he's commenting on history using the license that or using the authority that scriptural commentators could bring to history. And that, I think, is one of the major differences to keep in mind, is that so somebody writing, um, for example, in uh, the books of Kings or the, the, or the book of Acts, writing um, what we would call sacred history, scriptural history, is given an insight to say at certain points in the text, and God willed that this happen, um, the, the anointing of Saul and David, the um, tribulations uh, and development of the, the state of Israel, things like that, that those writers have authority to comment and say, and God was specifically working in this way here. And the temptation of Christian historians ever since the writing of the book of Acts has been to continue on with that idea and say, we can look at this particular event, um, be it uh, the Protestant Reformation, uh, the um, war for American independence, 9-11, any number of these historical actions and say, God was working in this particular way in this event and trying to tell us something about who's right and who's wrong and what we should do next. Instead of looking at scripture as a whole and saying, we as Christians need to live in a certain way and God has told us about how we need to react to certain kinds of things 
and this is how I think based on that we need to react to this event. Do you see the, the distinction here between uh, saying this is what God's doing and then this is what I need to do in my life? Um, hope, hopefully that's clear um, because for Christian historiography, it's very often not. Um, Erosius is one example, uh, Eusebius is another, and many of the, the Christian stories that we read for this period are, feel like they can, they can comment authoritatively on um, what God is doing in history after the period that um, Revelation has um, been consolidated into the New Testament. Somebody who takes a very different view of things is Augustine. And so I'd like to briefly introduce this extremely important person um, and then talk about uh, his writing on the way that history should be interpreted and his answer to this pagan critique. So Augustine of Hippo, um, as I mentioned, was from North Africa, Roman North Africa. And he was born in 354 and died in 430. So he had a very long, very productive life. He was one of the most influential thinkers in Christian history, arguably the most influential thinker between Paul and Luther, um, maybe more important than Luther. Um, he was the most prolific writer in Christian history, which is kind of an amazing thing when you think about the fact that he was writing before the printing press. Um, granted, he had, by especially later on in his life, he had um, a whole staff of secretaries, and so he was essentially dictating most of what he wrote. Nevertheless, um, he wrote an incredible amount, and even more important than that, we have most of it. So somebody like Origen wrote probably a comparable amount of theology and exegesis, but most of what we have of his is lost, whereas with Augustine, we have almost everything. And we're even still finding a few more things in the 20th century. So it's incredibly prolific and incredibly brilliant writing on topics throughout the whole range of Christianity, um, in theological and dense theological treatises, in sermons which have survived, and in um, letters to various people throughout the empire. He was in contact with many of the most important political and religious figures in the empire in his, in his lifetime. He was born into a middle-class family in North Africa, which in modern Tunisia, and he was well-educated. He was as well-educated as his parents could pay for. They made actually serious sacrifices um, to get him his education. They wanted, his father wanted him to be a lawyer. Um, didn't quite work out that way. He ended up being a teacher and teaching uh, Latin literature. And he received appointments in North Africa first and then moving on to Rome and finally to Milan. Um, Milan at this time was actually more important than the city of Rome. It was the real seat of government because Rome was a little bit too far away from the borders and emperors needed to be out closer to where the action was. And so they moved their capital, at least for a time, out to Milan. And so to get to Milan was to, to get to where things were really going on. Um, so the emperor was there, and also another very important figure was there. Um, Ambrose, the bishop I mentioned who stood up to the emperor Theodosius, was there in Milan in the late 4th century, delivering very high-level Christian sermons um, that very high, uh, high levels of education, um, philosophical understanding. And these sermons were very uh, essential in um, Augustine's development um, and his journey to faith. So Augustine went through a series of intense conversions um, from the time that he was a very young man until um, getting closer to middle age. He moves from a nominal Christianity of his youth. Um, 
to Manichaeism. Manichaeism was a, a Christian-influenced Eastern religion um, that has some things in common with Gnosticism that we talked about before. It's very much dualistic. There's a, a principle of good and there's a principle of evil. Um, neither one of them created the other and they are at war in the, in the universe. Um, uh, Augustine felt that this was intellectually more satisfying than Christianity. He looked at Christian scriptures and said, this is bad Latin. I, I just don't understand. It, it, it's bad Latin. It's bad philosophy. I don't understand how I can, um, how I can make that, you know, after I've been studying Virgil and Cicero, make that my source for um, religious information. So he goes through Manichaeism and then on to Neoplatonism, which is um, a a late form of and mixing of Roman or Greco-Roman philosophy and um, Roman pagan ideals that uh, Junius is going to devote a whole session to in a couple of weeks. So remember that um, think Neoplatonism and know that it's uh, going to be coming back up. And then finally to a realized version of his of Christianity, where he fully embraces um, the Christian faith and makes that his faith for the rest of his life and his, his job to defend that faith on various fronts um, as a bishop. So he wanted to return back to North Africa after his conversion in Milan in 386 and live a secluded monastic and intellectual life, but the events were moving too fast and Christianity was facing too many serious issues and there were too few well-educated um, Christians, well-educated and devout Christians in North Africa for him to be allowed to do that. And so he was almost literally pulled into ordained ministry. And he um, was then made a bishop in a very short order, and he served as the Bishop of Hippo, which was the second largest city in Roman North Africa, a very important political as well as um, ecclesiastical role. And he did that for about 40 years, for a very long period. And he, in, in that entire time, he wrote brilliantly and prolifically. He was constantly delivering uh, sermons, writing these letters about controversies around the empire, and in addition to that, writing very large and very important um, Christian treatises, theological treatises on various um, issues that were uh, coming up. People often divide, since his career is so massive, uh, divide his work into three major controversies. Uh, there's one is his writing about the Don Siskism, which we talked about a few weeks ago, so I won't go into in detail. Just as a very quick recap, the Donatists were um, the, the party that believed that if anyone had compromised himself in any way during the final persecution at the um, beginning of the fourth century, that that person could not become, be serving an ordained minister again. And anybody who was in turn ordained by one of those people, even if it was only one person in a group of 20 who laid hands on this new minister, who himself was completely free of any question of being tainted by um, the by giving up books in persecution or renouncing faith in persecution, that person in sequence was had an invalid ordination. So they wanted an absolutely pure pedigree in their ordained priests and ended up setting up uh, a rival church alongside the Catholic Church. So you have two churches, you have Catholic and Donatists next door, sometimes, you know, even across the street from each other in cities and towns in North Africa. And they're fighting against one another violently in this time period. And Constantine um, writes prolifically against them and ends up um, helping to orchestrate councils and decrees, which finally um, 
don't exactly suppress the Donatist schism, but give it sort of a legal, legal and theological footing for Catholics to say, no, that, that issue has been settled, and the Donatists are really the ones that are in the wrong. That's his first major uh, issue. The second one is the Pelagian controversy, uh, which Junius will be talking about next week, so I will leave that one alone for the moment. And the final one is a dealing with the critique of Christianity by the pagans following Sacrobrome. And the way that he dealt with this critique that we discussed earlier was in writing a book called The City of God. Um, the City of God, sometimes called City of God Against the Pagans. This is Augustine's magnum opus. It is the single largest work that he wrote. The, if there's a, one work for which he's the most famous, which is hard to do with him since he wrote so many that are so amazing, um, this would probably be, probably be it. Um, it is history, philosophy, and theology all in one, and it provides a view of Christian history in contrast to this one being put out there by people like Erosius and Eusebius, who are simply trying to find events. Well, not simply, but one of the things they're trying to do is find events and say, this is what God is doing here and now, and this is what this event tells us. Instead, God, um, Augustine puts up uh, in opposition to each other, or in conjunction with one another, there's um, two cities. There's the city of God, and there's the city of man. However, the two of these are not simply fighting against one another at all times, and they're not, for us, from our perspective, so clearly defined that we could even say, over here is the city of God, and over here is the city of man. These two are inextricably mixed. And in addition to that, the city of man itself is not wholly evil. It's not simply the city of God good, city of man evil, and good must prevail over evil. What you have is that true Christians themselves are what comprise the city of God. Think of the parables of the wheat and the tares. Um, wheat is sown, and then, and then Satan comes along and sows tares, sows weeds, in among the wheat. And... So Christians are living alongside pagans or non-Christians at the same time, the city of God and the city of man. And they must stay mixed. Um, in, the, in the parable it is that if you, try, if you try and uproot the chairs, you're going to be uprooting the wheat also. And so for Augustine, the idea is that, so true Christians are there, but even to say that this is church versus state is not correct because within people who profess to be Christians, there are some who aren't. And among people who profess not to be Christians, there are people who are on their way to becoming Christians. Um, and so for us to, to look on these two cities, the city of God and city of man, and say, here's one and here's the other, you fall into this camp or you fall into the other, is to take God's faculty of judgment upon ourselves and say that we know definitively which one is which. So he says they're there, and if... You know, if you are a faithful Christian, you can have some sense that you yourself are a part of the city of God or um, uh, believe that you, you are working with your whole, your whole being, your whole faith to, to make yourself a citizen in the city of God. But to, to look around you and to start to say, I, I know who's with me in the city of God and I know who's not, and I can divide these two camps out, um, is to, to usurp um, God's faculty of judgment. The other important thing is that Christians, members of the city of God, live in and among people that comprise the city of man. The city of man is, has its own secular institutions. Um, Paul talks about this in Romans 13, that Christians should obey, that the, even secular non-Christian institutions are, are in some sense ordained by God uh, to, to keep order in the world. 
So Christians live in the city of man and they are subject to his laws, to its laws, as well as to the laws of the city of God. And the laws of the city of God are higher and apply to a world that is beyond the physical, while the laws of the city of man are relegated only to the physical world here and now. Now this ancient people, Roman people, for them, this, this idea of people citizen or people living in one place and being subject to its laws, but then actually being citizens of another place was very, very common. And it's something that's been lost to us and was also lost in the medieval world. It is um, the status of a person living in a Roman city as a peregrinus, uh, or the peregrini, people uh, in plural, um, that's written there on your handout under City of God. And it's was a very common distinction in Roman law when people, one of the most common things would be when somebody moved from Greece to the city of Rome. And this would happen very often because you, uh, there were large centers of education in Greece, classical education, and people could take that from Greece to Rome under the empire and find work and make money. But when they would live in Rome, they wouldn't necessarily be Roman citizens yet. And they would have a, a, a kind of dual legal status as um, peregrinus. Peregrinus is the root of our word pilgrim, um, somebody who is journeying in another land and is in between two worlds. And legally, they, these people would not be, would not enjoy uh, the, the full rights of Roman citizens, although they would, they would enjoy the major protections of Roman law, and yet they would be, in some sense, citizens of another place. They would only be fully at home in this other place. And Augustine is taking that, that Roman legal tradition and um, playing on it in addition to um, the, um, cons the distinctions of the Christ's idea of the kingdom of God uh, versus um, earthly kingdoms and fusing them together in his idea of the city of God and saying that Christians are like this. Christians are like people with pilgrim status in Rome. They have certain loyalties here while they're in Rome, um, but they are something beyond that. And the, this, will, this will only become clear who is, who is of what part in, in the end when God makes his judgments. And it is therefore not so much a, his view of history then um, is one in which these two groups are constantly mixed. And there's no, for him, sense, he feels like the pagans when they're, when they're making their um, attack on Christian, Christianity saying, well, now um, the gods are angry and this is the result. He's saying that that, that doesn't work this way. Um, both Erosius and the pagans are playing the same game when they say that we can see now this is what God's doing to us because of our actions right here. Uh, Augustine instead goes back through Roman history and says, no, I mean, there were always evil things going on and there were always good things going on. Um, God has been at work in sacred history um, and in Roman history because all history is uh, part of what God is doing. And we can't say any particular event um, is the result of God's judgment outside of the commentary of scripture. And instead, that what history shows us is the interaction of these two kingdoms, of these two cities, constantly the city of man and the city of God, and that only God um, is able to make the final judgment. So he, that's that's, that's really his 
his answer to these pagan critiques is not to, to start playing their own game the way Erosius and Eusebius do um, by saying instead, no, um, it's not the gods that are showing us, the, that are giving us the results of, the, that are giving us the fruit of our actions, it's the one god. Augustine says instead, no, it's, it, it's quite a bit more complicated than that. It's, it, it's something where good and evil are still, uh, still inextricably mixed, but we do know things about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, and we can still work for that um, and do the things that we are commanded to do here on earth. But we're not going to see, we can't point to these events and say, oh, now we've been doing it right because things are going politically well for us, or we've been doing it wrong because things are going politically poorly for us. The, this, the sack of the city of Rome, while it has this great psychological impact on the Roman world, it's actually not that important. He really relativizes it and says, um, the, the, real, the real importance here is the way that we as human beings live our lives within um, the city, not what happens, not whether or not barbarians make it across the wall. One of the um, difficulties about sustaining this idea is that obviously it's, it's a bit complicated, um, a bit more complicated than what the pagans were saying or what Erosius was answering. And it becomes very difficult. It's easier to apply when you have a Christian church in the midst of a pagan government. It becomes very difficult to apply in the next century when all of a sudden the government is Christian and in some sense understood to be ordained by God and by Christ. And the church is also Christian, but is a rival center of power. So it becomes very easy for many thinkers in the Middle Ages to start saying, Ah, yes, it goes in the city of God. The city of God is the church. The city of man is the secular government. And exactly that thing that Augustine was trying to avoid, which was saying, here's what the city of God is. We can define it as over here. Here's what the city of man is. It's over here. And the two are in conflict with one another, is what people start doing with this work. They're going to start um, oversimplifying this distinction that he meant to leave complex um, and leave interwoven. They're, they're breaking the interweaving and saying, nope. Um, it, it's church versus state. Um, so keep that in, in mind as we um, move on in the next couple of weeks further toward the um, end of Roman political hegemony and the rise of um, medieval states which consider themselves both politically and ecclesiastically Christian. So do we have about three more minutes? Do we have any questions? Yeah. So is this... Um citizenship of the city of God, city of man, mm -hmm. we're going, we're currently citizens of man working to become citizens of God? Uh, that Christians are citizens of God first and foremost, okay. but they're, they, while on earth, they are citizens of the city of man as well, subject to its laws insofar as those laws don't directly conflict with um, Christianity. So, you, you Jesus um, is asked about taxes, render unto Caesar, what is Caesar's, render unto what uh, God is God's. Augustine is applying that, um, that principle and saying, you need to be good citizens of Rome insofar as that is possible, but remember that your true citizenship is elsewhere. Now, did that make cultural sense where the Greeks living in Rome were not actually trying to attain Roman citizenship? They wanted to hold on to their Greek citizenship? Um, sometimes they wanted to hold on to their Greek identity, sometimes they were working very hard for Roman citizenship, so the analogy of course is not perfect. Um, they, 
pair, the status of a pilgrim was in some senses um, less than full Roman citizenship, whereas uh, I don't think Augustine would say that um, that Christians have less than full Roman citizenship, except insofar as full Roman citizenship might be intertwined with pagan belief, in which case he would say, no, you can never be fully be Roman in that sense. Um, but Greeks were often trying to move out of pilgrim status into full Roman citizenship, and these Christians are not <laughs> trying to give up their status as citizens of the city of God and just become citizens of the city of man. They're, they're, trying to, they're maintaining both and maintaining obligations to both um, while they exist on earth. The hand over here. Yeah, it seems like, like for now, you know, here we are in the years but the Christian church really didn't flourish that much in North Africa as it did from Europe. What happened? I mean, you see the guy of uh, Hippo here, he was very much uh, proclaiming Christ in Christianity. What happened? Islam happened. Um, so this, yeah, North Africa gives us many of our greatest early Christian uh, theologians and biblical exegetes. Um, we've mentioned several of the people that we've talked about this semester have been from Roman North Africa, either Egypt or further west, as we mentioned right here. But in the 7th century, this entire area will be conquered by Islam. And for several centuries, actually quite a bit longer than people used to think, the first the majority of the population will remain Christian, and then um, even substantial minorities of it will remain Christian. In Egypt to this day, about 10% of the population is Christian. However, the, the era in which um, North Africa was a center of Christian thought and Christian learning will end um, relatively early, and it will centers of Christian thought will shift north into the European continent in the Middle Ages. Okay, well, that is our time. Um, if you would allow me, I'd like to close this in prayer. Lord God, I, th I thank you that you have given us uh, citizenship in your kingdom here now on earth, Lord. Um, I pray that you will give us the wisdom and understanding to be good citizens there as well as... Um, here, Lord, on earth, where that kingdom is not um, yet fully consummated in the new heaven and the new earth, God, and that you will um, help us sort out those obligations. And I thank you, God, that you have given us the record of Christians wrestling with exactly these questions in history, God, um, as examples to learn from. Um, I pray for our worship here together today in the service. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.